Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. So first the institutions told us that Columbus was the first European in the Americas. Then they said, oops, well, sorry folks, maybe the Vikings weren't making it all up, but they were only in Canada. Then again they said, well, maybe they were in parts of the Northeast U.S., but we really don't have any proof. What about the hundreds and thousands of anomalous sites and artifacts that have been found all over the Americas? They can't all be fakes, or can they? Tonight I will discuss one of the most fantastic and, if true, amazing archaeological discoveries of all time that would rewrite history as we know it. I hope you're all uh, doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope you've had a great day, a great weekend. Uh, it's rainy and wet here, so it's a great time for me to tell you uh, a legend from the, from the American Southwest. First off, I want to start the program, as always, with some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, always big supporters of the, of the program. Russell over at Hangar 18, thanks for your support, and uh, continue, continue turning out the good content, man. Good show. Uh, quite unusual pod. It's a great podcast I've been listening to lately. Really great program, and um, they've been very supportive of the program here as well. Uh, I also want to give Sebastian a shout-out in the Bay of Plenty. Welcome aboard, and I hope that you enjoy the show. So first, I'm just going to give you a few uh, updates and a few show notes, folks. So uh, I'm working on having a new logo done for the show, so hopefully I'll have that up pretty soon. Um, I'm also, as I say, I'm you know deep in investigation into getting a website for the show, so have somewhere that uh, you can go and find a bit more update of the content in that and uh, get an idea of what I'm going to be covering over in the future. But, uh, but first, you know, I, I really don't want to turn out anything that's uh, subpar or, or something that I feel isn't up to, the, uh, up to the program. So I'm going to take my time with these things, folks, so please just bear with me as I do. As always, you can go over and follow the, uh, the Paranormal Sun on Instagram. That's a really good, really good uh, forum for you to see what's going on, see what I'm covering over give you a bit of an update on future shows and uh, some of the photos to give you some background on some of the topics that I discuss. And uh, aside from that, um, the next show, uh, look, I really haven't decided yet, folks, but uh, I'll update you later in the week. Uh, things are just moving a bit quickly at the moment, and um, I've been struggling to keep to my recording schedule, so I don't want to get too far into the next program before I finish this one. So I will have an update a little bit later in the week. If you want to go over on Instagram, you can see it there. And, um, you know, that'll give you a bit of an idea what the what the next program will be after this. So first, I'm going to discuss uh, a little bit of the uh, updates on uh, Maje Brazil, uh, you know, accused UFO crash that um, I've covered over before. And then I'll get into the news of the damned. So yeah, folks. Look, it's been it's been really interesting. Some of the stories that are coming out of Brazil right now, and some of the background uh, information that I've been hearing about. So as I say, you know, it's horrific what's happening in the U.S. right now. You know, um, uh, my my heart bleeds for the country to see the streets, uh, you know, on fire. People out there protesting. Uh, you know, police and protesters. Uh, you know, going to armed conflict uh, again. That's not what this program's about, and I really don't want to go too far into it because I know it's a very, um, a very hot topic at the moment, and um, that's not why you're here. You know, you're probably here listening to this program to get a bit of an escape from it. 
But uh, the reason why I'm covering that and, uh, and also the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, it really doesn't matter if these are, you know, staged events or uh, instigated events or if they're 100 uh, percent organic. The reason why it doesn't matter is to the U.S. government and many other governments around the world, you know, they, they definitely learned the lessons from uh, Nazi Germany and from Joseph Goebbels, in, in my estimation anyway. And uh, to paraphrase uh, Herr Goebbels, uh, one of his uh, quotes that I've never forgotten is that, um, you know, never, never, never waste the opportunity that's given to you by a good disaster. So in other words, you know, something, something bad happens, uh, get everybody get everyone's mind on that, well, you know, you're doing the Wizard of Oz and you're moving things around behind the curtains. Uh, as far as the Nazis go, the perfect example was the uh, the Reichstag fires, you know. Now, whether those fires actually were caused by a communist, uh, a communist person or not, it doesn't matter because that allowed the Nazis to uh, galvanize the, the people into um, giving them the power that they never then relinquished until the end of World War II. So it's really important right now, folks, that, you know, you just kind of look at what's going on aside from the riots, aside from COVID-19. You know, it's the old uh, it's the old uh, trick that you'll see on the streets and they've got the, you know, the, the walnuts or something under one of the cups. And they're always trying to get you to watch the other hand while, you know, they're performing their sleight of hand. So all I'm saying, folks, is just watch what's going on behind the scenes. Pay attention to other things that are happening. Uh, because many times in the past, this is where governments will sneak through things, uh, legislation and, and, and such, or, uh, you know, something else is going on. So, uh, yeah, just, just pay attention to what's going on. So on that topic, and specifically about Maje Brazil, folks, there's been some real wild stuff coming out of there. Now, um, I don't have all the sources, but I will put a link up to uh, Linda Moulton Howe's program on YouTube because um, she's, uh, again, done an excellent job at covering this over. As I say myself, look, I, I guarantees of what's going on. I don't know if any of this is true or false. I'm not there. I wasn't on the ground. You know, I haven't seen what's going on. But basically, Linda's been covering over some of the um, information coming out of there. And again, you know, there's, um, there's accusations that uh, U.S. special forces were on the ground in Brazil, that uh, with the assistance of the Brazilian military and police, they shot down and, you know, a craft, for lack of a better term, because, you know, we, we don't know if it was an, uh, a craft from another planet, a craft from, you know, the, another solar system, a craft from another dimension. But the words are coming out that the U.S. Special Forces went in with a beam weapon of some sort and shot down this craft with the full complexity of the Brazilian military who basically invited them in. Now, the numbers that Linda's talking about and that I from other venues are, you know, less than 20 special forces on the ground. And um, that these special forces said to Brazilian uh, military that um, there have been more and more of these crafts uh, turning up on Earth all over the, as of late. Now, again, folks, take this with a grain of salt because, uh, you know, I don't know how true any of this is, but I do find it quite interesting. Now, uh, the, the, the next bit about it is that um, not only did they shoot down this craft, but, um, you know, there were three, at least three six and a half foot tall entities that, um, you know, exited the craft, you know, upon its crash and that the U.S. Uh, Special Forces uh, killed one of these beings with some type of weaponry that um, the Brazilian military had never seen. Now, this may be true. It may be false. Uh, 
But I, again, I, I find it fascinating, some of the stuff coming out, that um, there has been inter intercepted radio transmissions between U.S. Special Forces and uh, Brazilian military in the area. Now, uh, on Linda's program, uh, they also did say that this was basically an, a, a drop and then an extraction of these uh, U.S. Special Forces. So they were only there for a short time, maybe a day at maximum. They then left. And they were very careful that all of the helicopters and such used anything visible to the Brazilian public was Brazilian military or Brazilian police um, assets, not U.S. special forces. So again, if this is true, folks, it's uh, you know it's it's quite uh, quite interesting. You know, now there were also rumors that the U.S. the new U.S. space forces were involved in this. Um, again, you know, um, wow, uh, this is just really something else and I'll be watching it very closely and I'll make sure to continue to update you as news breaks on this. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go over and listen to this program if you would like. But uh, wow, you know, like, like I've said before, I can't ever remember in my memory hearing about something like this, like a crashed uh, retrieval uh, unfolding right in front of us. Um, not to this degree. I've heard of different, you know, craft crashing and then being pulled away, but you know, not, um, not on uh, Brazilian soil, so, you know, not away from the U.S., um, not with all these different forces and that involved. And uh, there were actually witnesses from the area nearby where this happened to, that, that saw these U.S. special forces in the area with the Brazilian military because um, the area where they allegedly fired the beam from uh, was in an industrial part of Maje, which is about... 20, it's either 20 miles or 20 kilometers across the lagoon from Rio, Rio de Janeiro. So, you know, this is quite a large uh, metropolitan area. You know, they, they by, by no means were they out in, out in the, um, the boondocks, you know, shooting at this uh, UFO. But uh, again, I, I think it's something that we all need to be aware of. So with that out of the way, folks, with the Maje update out of the way, and, um, and again, you know, you can drop me an email on, at the paranormalsun at gmail.com. Um, I don't know much more than you do at this moment, folks, but if there's something that you are interested in or, or something, you know, around the Maje case that you would like me to clarify or, uh, you know, do my best to research on, just drop me a note and I'll come back to you. So now over to the news of the damned. And again, for listeners who heard before, the news of the dam is basically... Uh, you know, a homage to Charles Fort, who I've covered over in an earlier program. But Charles Fort referred to anything that was unexplained or not covered by normal science as damned. So in other words, excluded. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, I've got three topics as I do every week uh, of kind of weird or unexplained news, something interesting for you. So the first one is about Maje. So it's the it, it's the most up to date article I could find out there on the web. And this one is from the Express.co.uk. And this uh, was published on the thirtieth of May by Oli Smith. And the title of the article is UFO Sighting: Mysterious Orbs Spotted in Brazil Just Days After Alleged UFO Crash Cover Up. Mysterious bright orb hovering above a village in Rio de Janeiro just days after an alleged alien crash in the same area has sparked a social media frenzy. So again, remembering that Rio and Maje are only a short distance away from each other, a short car ride. 
Footage of a bizarre UFO hovering above a village near Rio de Janeiro earlier this month has been released, sending social media into a meltdown. The footage, taken on May 18th, captures a bright white orb moving over a small village before appearing to vanish. The video was filmed just a few days after the alleged UFO crash that took place in Maje, Brazil, and sparked online conspiracies about a cover-up. The new UFO footage, filmed by Beatriz Venturini, lasts for approximately three minutes and has already recorded thousands of views after being posted online. Many viewers linked the bizarre UFO sightings to the alleged UFO crash spotted over Maje, where video footage revealed mysterious lights crashing in a nearby forest just north of Rio de Janeiro. One viewer remarked, I saw a similar clip from what looks like the same area a couple of weeks ago somewhere, where it descends into the valley. Another remarked that the sighting was definitely connected to the UFO crash in Brazil. However, one skeptic pointed out that the UFO looks like the sun reflecting off something shiny. The alleged UFO crash sighting in, in mid-May sparked a global frenzy after thousands of people were said to have witnessed the event. The mysterious lights were captured in multiple videos from different angles and even led Maje to trend on Twitter. Those objects were spotted by residents in four towns of metropolitan area across Rio de Janeiro. One witness, Andre DeMauro, tweeted after the sightings, There are reports that something fell over there in a lake, but it doesn't seem to be a satellite. UFO enthusiasts then shared a Google Maps link of a forest in Maje that sparked claims on Google Maps cover-up conspiracy. The satellite image revealed a white image glitch in a, in a bizarre shape in a wooded area north of Rio de Janeiro. The military said city council both claimed that there was no sign of an accidental crash in the area. Earlier this month, a mysterious bright orb was also spotted hovering above a secretive U.S. military space base. The bizarre UFO was recorded flying over the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, in Colorado. The UFO made a mysterious rumbling sound as it hovered and moved around the sky. Well, folks, I will tell you that um, you have to be very careful with all of these type of things. As the old saying goes, you know, not everything on the Internet is true. And there have been instances, uh, Linda Moulton Howe covered over on her program, one of these instances uh, where old footage was manipulated so that it looked like some, uh, you know, so it looked like uh, the, the military and um, paramedics and fire were responding to this UFO crash in Brazil. Now, why would someone do that? Well, in this day and age of, uh, you know, people making money from YouTube, however small of an amount it is, people are trying to drive clicks to their websites. All I'm saying, folks, is judge for yourself. Don't believe that every single thing that you hear online or you read about online or in the papers is true. You know, do your own research. And um, that's where I'm trying to do my best to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff for you and then let you make your own opinions. Because, again, here on The Paranormal Sun, my job is not to pass judgment. My job is to present the evidence to you and then allow you to come up with your own conclusions. But uh, nonetheless, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And now on to the second article of the day, which is from LiveScience.com. And uh, this one was published on the 19th of February, 2020. And this one is titled, Bizarre Ice Volcanoes Erupt on Lake Michigan Beach. Now, this is definitely something that Charles Fort would find interest in. So this was from Nicoletta Lonesi, staff writer. And it says, uh, what are ice volcanoes and why are they erupting in Michigan? 
Ice volcanoes spewed great plumes of water on the shores of Lake Michigan last weekend, and the National Weather Service caught the odd phenomenon in action. During a stroll on Oval Beach in the lake's eastern shore, located in the state of Michigan, an employee of the NWS Grand Rapids snapped a few photos of water bursting from mounds in the frigid ground. You never know what you'll find at the lake until you go out there, the employee tweeted. Today it was volcanoes. Despite their nickname, ice volcanoes aren't really volcanoes at all. Really. Um, <laughs> really. Uh, the cone-shaped mounds form at the edges of lakes, where thin sheets of ice form and water shoots through the holes in the ice. Tom Nizzoli, a contributor for Weather Underground's Category 6 blog, explained in a Facebook post, Water sloshes beneath the ice sheets and builds up enough pressure to force spurts of water to the surface in the air above. If the air above is cold enough, the released water freezes over the surrounding ground, forming a mini-volcano of sorts. Ice volcanoes can be very dangerous to climb on, however, because they are hollow and built over the hole in the ice. Don't ever go venturing onto them, which I would second, folks. So, uh, look, I'll put a link to this in the show notes for you. Um, there are some quite uh, impressive photos here. And uh, it does look like mini volcanoes, but uh, obviously rather than spouting ash and, and pumice and, and, and uh, magma, uh, these are spouting water. So again, this is, this is quite interesting, and I think that you would find some of the photos interesting. Now the third uh, article, third and final article this week, is uh, from the NPR, uh, and this article is titled, Long Forgotten Secret Passageway Discovered in a Wall at UK Parliament. Uh, this was published on February 28, 2020, by Laurel Walmsley. Now, uh, I have seen this on TV, so this is this is quite interesting. And again, this just goes to show that um, when uh, archaeologists and other mainstream science try and tell us, oh, well, we know this is what happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, or we know this is what happened 50 million years ago, uh, sorry, folks, no one does, because this uh, tunnel was uh, built into the UK Parliament, um, you know, just, I think, from memory, about 150 years ago, and everybody forgot about it. Uh, sorry, it's 360 years ago. So if we didn't know about this and it was discovered uh, recently, uh, who's to say what happened a 1,000 or 2,000 or a million years ago? Who's to say that any of that, uh, we, we have any idea of what happened? So, uh, yeah, folks, just, just remember... Uh, the human mind is uh, is fallible. Uh, memories are fallible, and especially once you start going back in time, not everything written down, or uh, you know, just because something wasn't written down, doesn't mean it didn't happen. So it says, within the wood paneling of a hallway in the British House of Commons, there was a small brass keyhole. Members of Parliament and staff walked past the tiny hole each day. The rare person who noticed the hole took it for an electrical cabinet. Enter a team of historians planning the much-needed restoration of the Palace of Westminster, of Westminster, which is home to the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The oldest part of the estate, Westminster Hall, dates to 1099 and is still in use. For the, so for those of you who don't know, that's around the time of William the Conqueror uh, when he invaded England. It's that far back. The team was at the Historic England Archive, poring over some 10,000 uncatalogued documents relating to the Palace when they found something interesting, plans for a doorway in the cloister behind Westminster Hall. Back at the palace, they found that tiny keyholes in the wood paneling, just where the plan suggested it would be. They had a key made so that they could open the door, and they discovered a secret passageway 360 years old. To say we were surprised is an understatement. We really thought it had been walled up forever after the war, Mark Collins, Parliament's uh, estates historian, said in a statement. 
They knew that such a passage had once existed, but believed that it had been filled in after the palace was bombed during World War II. Behind the door was a small room with hinges for a door that would have been more than 11 feet high and that would have opened into Westminster Hall. It turns out to be a passageway with a rich history. Investigators claimed that the ceiling timbers in the room and determined that the trees there had been harvested in 1609. That corroborated accounts suggesting that the doorway was created around 1660 for the coronation banquet of Charles II, the king who ruled until 1685. Records ind indicate the route was used by part of the coronation procession as it passed from the former House of Lords into a hall where the king and queen were seated. Afterward, the door was used for coronations, the speaker's procession, and more commonly, by members of parliament to access the commons chamber. Historians say the entrance was used for centuries by figures including the diarist Samuel Peebies, Robert Walpole, now regarded as the first British Prime Minister, and William Pitt the Younger. In the passage, the team found more recent artifacts, graffiti from 1851. A bricklayer who was restoring the palace years after an 1834 fire had written on the walls in pencil, this room was enclosed by Tom Porter, who was very fond of old ale. <laughs> Aren't most of us. Another bit of graffiti read, These masons were employed refacing these groins. August 11th, 1851, Real, Real Democrats. The term Real Democrats suggests that the masons were supporters of the Charitist movement for universal voting rights for men and allowed for, and allow for members of parliament who weren't property owners. House of Commons Speaker Lindsay Hoyle paid a visit to the newly discovered passageway once used by his predecessors over centuries. Now again, folks, I'll put a link uh, to this in the show notes. But um, again, this is quite fascinating, and it just goes to show, you know, this is one of the most uh, trafficked areas in the UK, the House of Commons. So, uh, you know, people do tours and everything else in here, and uh, you've obviously got, you know, members of Parliament going up and down these hallways every day. And yet, you know, even the people who uh, passed by it thought that it was a, an electrical cabinet entrance. And now they've found this uh, basically secret, secret tunnel. So again, folks, it just goes to show that history is all around us. There are lots of things that aren't explained, and there are lots of things that we don't have the answers for, uh, irregardless of what the established, uh, the established uh, museums and uh, quote-unquote experts will tell you. So again, uh, this is an excellent segue into the main body of uh, the program today. Now, my friends, if you haven't already, go and get yourself a nice hot cup of something, or um, if it's somewhere where you are, go and get yourself a nice cool drink, because once you settle in and hear what I'm going to present tonight, you won't want to break off while we're partway through, because it's, it's quite a fascinating topic. So when you think of the American Southwest, what comes to mind? Do you just think of deserts and mesas and uh, the Grand Canyon? Or do you think of something more? Do you think of the unexplained? Do you think of a mystical area? Some part of America that's never been fully explored and fully documented? Well, that's what I think of. And uh, all over the Americas, as I say, there have been anomalous buildings and settlements and uh, all kinds of discovered items that are out of the archaeological record. You know, they, they don't fit in with what we've been taught in schools and, and what we've been taught by our academics and academia at large. So we're going to cover over a fascinating tale from the Grand Canyon. 
and this tale is about a long-lost and rediscovered ancient city that is purportedly in the Grand Canyon. So the Grand Canyon itself is about 277 miles long, or 445 kilometers. It's up to 18 miles wide, uh, which is 28 kilometers, and one mile deep, 1.6 kilometers. So, you know, imagine this great rift a mile deep in the ground, or 1.6 kilometers deep. That in and of itself is fascinating before we get into the, uh, the myths and legends of the area. The Grand Canyon is one of the most beautiful and awe-inspiring places in the U.S. and in the world. The Hopi Indians believe it is the gateway to the afterlife. Its sheer immensity and mystery attracted more than 6 million visitors alone in 2016. So that's more than the entire population of my country. But what the people that go to visit probably don't know is that the Grand Canyon might have been the home of an entire underground civilization. But where are they now? And why did they abandon the Grand Canyon? So tonight's story begins in 1909 when a purported Smithsonian Institution explorer, G.E. Kincaid, discovered strange caverns during an exp expedition directed by Smithsonian anthropologist S.A. Jordan. The entrance to the cavern was nearly inaccessible, but Kincaid was able to get in to make an incredible discovery. The enormous caves, which radiated out from the center cavern like spokes on a wheel, were full of artifacts including statues, copper weapons, even granaries full of seeds. Its size indicated that 50,000 people could have lived inside comfortably. But even more amazing, the artifacts didn't match up with anything in the known record. Rather than appearing to be of Native American origin, as one might expect, the objects had distinct Egyptian or Tibetan designs. Could there actually have been an entire civilization of Egyptians living there? If so, how did they get there? The legend dates back to uh, a particular story from the April 5, 1909 edition of the Arizona Gazette. The publication claimed that two individuals came across, across something rather startling somewhere in the Marble Canyon region of the Grand Canyon. Now, I'm going to read this article to you in its entirety, but I just want to preface it a bit by saying you've got to remember that this was written in 1909, and the views uh, at the time were rather racist and crude, especially against Native Americans. So please take that with a, with a grain of salt, folks. These are the words directly from the article. These are not my thoughts. These are not my viewpoints on the matter. As I say, I'm a quarter American Indian, so it's a bit hard for me to, be, um, to have some of these, uh, these racist thoughts. So first, I'm going to read the entire article over for you. And then I'll, I'll give you a bit more uh, background on... Um, you know, kind of the area and some of the thoughts of what this may be. So the article was entitled, Mysteries of Immense Rich Cavern Being Brought to Light. The latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the U.S., but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette. So uh, as an aside, folks, earlier there was a Gazette article, which I haven't bothered to read, just highlighting that um, this GE Kincaid had discovered uh, this lost city and that they would be covering it over in more depth in future. And that's why I didn't really go back to that. There were only two articles written about this in the Arizona Gazette. So just bear that in mind. Keep that in the back of your brain. So now back into the article itself. It was brought to you, brought to the city yesterday by GE Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a riverboat to Yuma several months ago, 
According to the story related to the Gazette by Mr. Kincaid, the archaeologists of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the expeditions, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern, hewn in solid rock by human hands, was of oriental origin, possibly from Egypt, tracing back to Ramesses. If their theories are borne out by the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, the mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were, and whence they came, be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by a historical chain running back to ages which staggers the wildest fancies of the fictionist. A thorough examination. Under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most thorough explorations which will be continued until the last link in the chain is forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 1,480 feet below the surface, the long main passageway has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiate scores of passageways like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been discovered, ha having been explored for 854 feet and another for 634 feet. The recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country, and doubtless they have their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp-edged and hard as steel, indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to a camp for extensive studies, and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Dr. Kincaid's Report Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho, and has been an explorer and hunter all of his life, 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. First, I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 1,486 feet down the sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land, and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested, without fear of archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless, and the visitor would be sent on his way. The story of how I found the canyon has been related, but in a paragraph. I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat alone, looking for mineral. Some 42 miles up the river from the El Tovar Crystal Canyon, I saw in the east wall stains in the sedimentary formation about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no tra trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf which hid it from view from the river was the mouth of the cave. There are steps leading from this entrance some 30 yards to what was, at, at the point the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I became interested, securing my gun, and I went in. During that trip, I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to a crypt in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics, which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the explorations were undertaken. So that alludes, folks, to that earlier article that he basically said he had discovered this this uh, tunnel in the side of the canyon and that he would be going back and doing further excavations. So that Mr. Kincaid's report section, that is basically the crux of the first article that came out in the Arizona uh, Gazette. The passages. 
The main passageway is about 12 feet wide, narrowing to 9 feet wide toward the other end, about 57 feet from the entrance. The first side passages branch off to the right and left, along which, on both sides, are a number of rooms about the size of an ordinary living room of today, though some are about 30 to 40 feet square. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. The walls are about 3 feet 6 inches in thickness. The passages are chiseled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by an engineer. The ceilings of many of these rooms converge to a center. The side passages near the entrance ran in a, at a sharp angle from the main hall, but towards the rear they gradually reach a, a, a right angle in direction. The Shrine now this is where it really gets interesting. Over a hundred feet from the entrance in the cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which are found the idol or image of the people's god, sitting cross-legged, with a lotus flower or a lily in each hand. The cast of the face is oriental, and the carving this cavern, uh, the idol almost resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that this worship most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some very beautiful in form, others crooked-necked and distorted shapes, symbolical, probably, of good and evil. There are two large cactus with protruding arms, one on each side of the dais, in which the god squats. All this is carved out of hard rock re resembling marble. In the opposite corner of the cross hall, there were found tools of all descriptions made of copper, these people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemicals for centuries without results. On a bench running around the workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. There is also slag and stuff similar to mate, showing that these ancient smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done have been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among the other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold, made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enameled ware and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to granaries which are found in the oriental temples. They contain seeds of various kinds. One very large storehouse has not yet been entered, as it is 12 feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend on the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded. The materials of which they are constructed, I think, is very hard cement. A gray metal was also found in this cavern, which puzzles the scientists, for its identity has not been established. It resembles platinum, strewn promiscuously over the floor everywhere or what people call cat's eyes, a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of the Malay type, the hieroglyphics. On all urns or walls over doorways and tablets of stone which were found by the image, or the mysterious hieroglyphics, the key to which the Smithsonian Institute hopes yet to discover. The engravings on the tables probably were something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals were found. One is a prehistoric type. So as a quick aside here, folks, that is true. All over the, the uh, American Southwest and in many parts of America, there are all types of pictographs that have been discovered and unknown writings. So... Some have been proven to be, uh, you know, purposeful hoaxes, but a lot of this is unexplained. And again, it doesn't fit in with the scientific ref record, and therefore it is usually discounted by scientists at large and the scientific community. So carrying on with the article, the crypt. 
The tomb or crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest of the chambers, the walls slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees. On these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. At the head of each is a small bench on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered with clay and all are wrapped in bark fabric. The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, while on the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design showing a later stage of civilization. It is worthy of note that all of the mummies examined so far have proved to be male. No children or females have been buried here. This leads to the belief that the exterior section was the warrior's barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found. No skins, no clothing, no bedding. Many of the rooms are bare but for water vessels. Only room where 40 by 700 feet were probably, uh, sorry, one room, about 40 by 700 feet was probably the main dining hall for cooking utensils have been found here. That these people lived on is a problem. What these people have lived on is a problem. Though it is presumed that they came south in winter and farmed in the valleys, going back north in the summer. Upwards of 50,000 people could have lived in the caverns comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribes found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people that, that once inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which reached a high stage of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. That's 100% true, folks. Professor Jordan is so enthused over the discoveries and believes that the find will prove a, of incalculable value in archaeological work. One thing I have not spoken of may be of interest. There is one chamber of the passageway to which is not ventilated, and when we approach it, a deadly snaky smell struck us. Our light would not penetrate the gloom, and until stronger ones are available, we will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but others say, but others boohoo this idea and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. The whole underground insulation gives one shaky nerves and, and the creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulders, and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can reveal in conjectures and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the, till the mind reels dizzily in space. An Indian Legend In connection with this story, it is notable that among the Hopi Indians, the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underworld in the Grand Canyon till dissension arose between the good and the, and the bad, the people of the one heart and the people of the two hearts. Machetto, which was their chief, counseled them to leave the underground, but there was no way out. The chief then caused a tree to grow up and pierced the roof of the underworld, and then the people of one heart climbed out. They tarried by Piasivai, which is the Red River, in Colorado, and grew grain and corn. They sent out a message to the Temple of the Sun, asking the blessing of peace, goodwill, and rain for people of the one heart. That messenger never returned, but today, as the Hopi villages at sundown can be seen, the old men of the tribe out on the housetops, gazing towards the sun, looking for the messenger to return. When he returns, their lands and ancient dwelling places will be restored to them. That is the tradition. Among the engravings of animals in the cave, it is seen the image of a heart over the spot where it is located. The legend was learned by W.E. Rollins, the artist, during a year spent with the Hopi Indians. There are two theories of the origin of the Egyptians. One is that they came from Asia. Another that the racial cradle was in the Upper Nile region, 
Harim, an Egyptologist, believed in the Indian origin of the Egyptians. The discoveries in the Grand Canyon may throw further light on human evolution and prehistoric ages. Now, folks, that's the article in its totality. So uh, I've covered over the article that appeared in the Arizona Gazette. And now I'm going to give you a bit of a further background and some of the other things uh, around this uh, fascinating story. So the story itself caused a huge sensation when it broke in the Arizona Gazette, but it was soon met with skepticism. The Smithsonian has no record of either of the scientists nor their discoveries and firmly quells any claims that Egyptian artifacts have ever been found in either North or South America. And no one has been able to find these supposedly massive caves since. Was this some elaborate hoax, maybe perp by the Gazette to sell papers? Some argue that the Smithsonian Institute has purposefully wiped Kincaid and Jordan from their records and actively destroyed artifacts that don't agree with the status quo of history. Now, the, another thing to, to keep in mind is that Kincaid and Jordan may have been contractors. So when the Smithsonian says that they can find no record of these men being employed, that may be true. They may be a, have been subcontracted by another professor or another area of the Smithsonian. So don't discount that. Now, the first known follow-up that I can find where someone actually took this story and tried to follow it up with the Smithsonian was an email in 1999. Uh, the, the copy of the email that Jack, um, sorry, folks, I don't have the, the, the gentleman's full name, but uh, the email that, that this man uh, named Jack got back from the Smithsonian uh, for one, the article never states that Kincaid and Jordan were employees, as I've, as I've uh, noted. G.E. Kincaid and S.A. Jordan were Smithsonian employees responsible for locating Egyptian temples in the Grand Canyon. The article states that Kincaid had 30 years of service with the Smithsonian. So that means, again, that he could have been a free lector, which was not uncommon for the Smithsonian to have. And to this day, folks, the perfect example is think of a newspaper. They don't have people stationed all over the world. So they'll have someone who writes a freelance article for them that then sends it into the paper and they will publish it. So this is not out of the ordinary. The article also states that under the direction of Professor Jordan, the Smithsonian is now prosecuting the most thorough examinations. This simply states that Jordan was directing, which meant that he may have been brought in from the outside by the Smithsonian to direct the investigations. Now again, here's a perfectly plausible explanation for that, folks. Let's say you're investigating something that doesn't fit with um, you know, known science, known history. If you bring in an outside person and this all goes pear-shaped, let's just say for argument's sake that this ends up being a hoax, well, then the Smithsonian can then distance itself by blaming this all on Jordan and saying, oh, no, look, it, it didn't have to do with us. This gentleman is the one who did the excavations. So it allows them then to distance themselves from that. And this proves that the Smithsonian almost did no research into the subject. So this is in the reply email and really just gave a quick skim over the article with a skeptical and biased eye, but are quick to say that these people never existed and that the story is untrue. But why would the Smithsonian cover up something like this? Because it would have changed the entire history of North America as we know it, as I mentioned. And it would not align with how history was written up to that point and in history. And believe it or not, there's precedence for the Smithsonian losing information about discoveries that are deemed to not fit in the current accepted dogma about the history of America and the interaction or lack thereof with ancient civilizations across the world. This story would definitely fit into that category. Uh, one that springs to mind is that uh, Ivan Sanderson, 
you know, he read about this article about them discovering uh, bones of giants in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. And, you know, he really went after the Smithsonian and said, you know, basically, how can you misplace these artifacts that have been sent to you, you know? Um, again, folks, uh, I'll get to this a bit at the end of the article in some of the proposed claims and some of the reasons why, uh, you know, this could have been a, a, a cover-up job, so to speak. Now, remember also that in the same area, the Hopi Indians lived. And again, many of the stories and traditions come from. So one of the old Hopi tales from the Book of the Hopi mentions that the Hopi people had originated from an underground cavern system in the Grand Canyon. Instead of having migrated from the West, as many of the archaeologists believe, one could speculate that perhaps the Hopi, the people of the One Heart, as I've already mentioned, had been specifically bred as a slave race and for the people of the Two Hearts, and that they later rebelled and escaped to become the Native American peoples that we know of today. Who exactly were the people of the One Heart and the people of the Two Hearts? The people of the One Heart are the people who were honest, whereas the people of the Two Hearts are people who say one thing but are thinking another. In other words, liars are those who speak with a forked tongue. Now, another bit of fascinating background on this area is that Seth Tanner, who was a Mormon settler who established the Tanner Trail in the Grand Canyon National Park, was chosen by Brigham Young to go on an expedition to search out a suitable place for settlement on the Little Colorado River. So this is from the Mormons in Utah. Once he settled along the Little Colorado River, his exploration grew around the area. One day he was exploring the area he had come across, and he found a cave that was held sacred by the Hopi. Hopi's place where their people originated from, correlating with the story um, that's been mentioned in the Arizona Gazette. The fact that he simply saw the sacred ground alone upset the Hopi a great deal. Now, normally in this situation, for an outsider or a white man to have seen this, he would be killed on the spot. But one of Tanner's wives was a Hopi, so his life was spared. But the issue was still at hand that an outsider had laid eyes on the sacred site and that the Hopi elders decided he was to be blinded for the remainder of his life. The Hopi put a type of powder into his eyes which turned them a cloudy white and, and made him go blind. John Wesley Powell, who is extremely famous in this area for being the first person uh, to travel down the entire Colorado River, and I say first white person, I should say. Um, he explored the Grand Canyon from 1896, uh, 18, sorry, 1866 to 1872, uh, before this article was published in the Gazette. In his book, Explorations of the Colorado River and its Canyons, he writes, In this, great numbers of caves are hollowed out, and carvings have been seen, which suggests archaeological and architectural uh, forms, though on a scale so grand that ar architectural terms belittle them. As the Great Bed forms a distinct feature of the canyon, we call it Marble Canyon. I walk down the gorge to the left at the foot of the cliff, climb to a bench, and discover a trail deeply worn into the rock. Where it crosses the side gulches, in some places, steps have been cut. I can see no evidence of its having been traveled for a long time. It was doubtless a path used by peoples who inhabited the country anterior to the present Indian races, the people who built the communal houses of which mention have been made. I return to camp about three o'clock and find that some of the men have discovered ruins and many fragments of pottery, also etchings and hieroglyphics on the rocks. Now that's directly from John Wesley Powell's uh, book, so he has little reason why. He would, uh, you know, 
tend to uh, cover these things up. John Wesley Powell, for those of you who don't know, later on went to be heavily involved in the Smithsonian Institute. So if you were going to write fantastical claims about your expedition into the Grand Canyon, you would not think that you would include things that uh, you'd not back up because, again, you know, at that time you would have been attacked as a, a crackpot or a, uh, you know, someone writing these fantastical stories, um, you know, if you would go into something that was so uh, prestigious as the Smithsonian Institute. So, you know, that's another bit of fascinating background to the story. Now, if this discovery was true, why is it so difficult to find the site? Now, this comes directly from the Grand Canyon National Park Visitors Information website, folks. And it says that the Grand Canyon National Park receives approximately 30,000 requests a year for backcountry permits. The park issues only 13,000 of these permits, and close to 40,000 people camp overnight in the backcountry at the Grand Canyon. A spectacular section of the canyon, together with plateau areas on either side of it, are preserved as the Grand Canyon National Park, which receives almost 4 million visitors a year. With so many people visiting the park, it should be likely that someone would have found this ancient site one day. But it's not so easy. The Grand Canyon National Park encompasses more than 1.2 million acres, and the vast majority of the park is inaccessible and off-limits due to the predominance of cliffs, and it's inhospitable to all but desert plants and animals. If visitors go too far outside of the labyrinth of corridors, caves, and holes, they can lose direction and fall down, or they could be seriously injured or lost forever. So there's an explanation on that, folks. A lot of the, the, the park is off-limits. If you read into this before, you'll find that most of the park is a fly zone. You're not allowed to fly in or out of the area. So, um, you know, again, there's lots of areas of the park that haven't been explored by you and I, so to speak. And uh, you could see why it would be off limits. So what are we left with, really? A host? A fake article in the Arizona Gazette? So the Arizona Gazette at the time was the second largest paper in Arizona and one of the more reputable papers in the Southwest. You can say that it helped sell papers, but if that was the point, why not continue the series further? Why not add other stories of lost cities? Why only have these two articles? If this city was hoaxed, imagine the manpower needed to create such a hoax, and why would you do it? What would you gain, especially at this time? This was not the day of YouTube and everyone being able to post things online. There have been multiple instances of items, as I say, being sent to the Smithsonian and disappearing. Now maybe this and other items are still there, locked away, like at the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But if so, it's basically lost to humanity. The institution itself may not be covering up such things, and you may also have individuals who have done this on their own because they feel that these items done with history as they feel that it should be taught or should be claimed. Now, one of the things, as I've said, you know, people have tried to explain away these Arizona Gazette stories by saying that it was inherent racism at the time, and they're basically people trying to say that the Indians didn't build anything and that these had to have been built by an outside presence. Well, folks, uh, if you go back and you look at the Native American record and the stories, most Native American tribes will not tell you they were the first in these areas anyway, that there were precursors and that there were also people that they had interactions with from uh, abroad. So, you know, the, the Native American um, stories in and of themselves don't preclude there being other races. So, you know, don't think that by believing in such things or going down this path that we are instantly, you know, racist and revisionist, trying to say that it had to have been Egyptians or white men or Tibetans. Last look, folks, this is an interesting article, and it's a fascinating tale to me. And in future, I will continue to cover over some of these tales from the uh, Southwest, especially, and some of these other tales that you may never have heard of. 
So with that, folks, I hope that you have a great week. And again, to sign off, uh, I will quote the great Art Bell with uh, the saying that a man should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so that whatever gray matter which does reside inside may not be reached.